Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about autogenics, uh, autogenic training, uh, the the origins of this uh, uh, approach at uh, self-hypnosis. And uh, I have to admit that I had actually never even heard of autogenics until I heard a very interesting track, and in, I think in some DJ mixes from about a decade ago. Uh, but the track uh, is called Group Autogenics One by the American Dutch musical duo The Books. I'd never heard of autogenics either. Uh, when you first proposed this subject, I was like, what is this? Is this where you create your own genome? That doesn't <laughs> sound right. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I, I was totally unfamiliar with this uh, kind of obscure, I guess, relaxation technique developed in the 20th century. And and I will say I had never heard this uh, song that you were uh, linking to, but but I looked it up and it's a great song, Robert. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's hard to describe. It's kind of a cut up of clips from various self-help and self-hypnosis tapes set to some very pleasing music. It's a wonderful track, and it's one that I, I, I find myself coming back to again and again just because it has a very you know, pleasing uh, atmosphere to it. And some of the little uh, clips in it I actually do kind of help me uh, engage in a certain amount of self-relaxation. Uh, but it's really hard to compare the books to other musical acts, or at least for me anyway. I, I feel like there's not a lot else out there that reminds me of the books. Hmm. 
So this raised a big question, though, for me when I started listening to the song over and over again. I was like, okay, it's it's clearly referring to something. What is autogenics? Um, and and I'm not sure how much of the sampled material is actually from autogenics rather than other self help and self hypnosis tapes. But the the book's member Nick Zamuda implied that it was uh, you know it's essential to the intention of the track in a 2010 uh, WordPress post uh, that he made about uh, about the release. He wrote. Quote, Wikipedia does a pretty good job of defining autogenics. Autogenic training restores the balance between the activity of the sympathetic fight or flight and the parasympathetic rest and digest branches of the autonomic nervous system. This is a pretty good description of what music does as well, so it seemed like a good pairing. Hmm. And then he continues. Unfortunately, a lot of the music that accompanies guided meditation productions is schlocky new age. Don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to schlock. It certainly has its place. But my goal became to reframe this bizarre narrative with music that could propel the track gently and still go on unexpected tangents where necessary. You know, I'm not sure if these uh, recordings of, of these guided meditations or, or, or uh, exercises are autogenics because – at least uh, in some of what we were reading, the, the classic works on autogenics did not come with recorded audio because mm -hmm. you were not supposed to listen to somebody else telling you what to do. Mm, you're yeah. supposed to direct your own behavior, which is what, what provides the auto part of the autogenics. Right, yeah. Though there, there is at least a part in it where you hear a woman saying, I'm calm. And that is, that is, it is at least a mantra that you here recited in autogenic training, mm -hmm. uh, which and we'll come back to that uh, later on. But, okay, so, so what is this technique called autogenic training? Well, it is an actual desensitization relaxation technique that has existed since the early 1930s. Uh, autogenic, the word comes from the Greek word autogenitos, meaning generated inside the body or self-regulated. Yeah, I've seen it translated as uh, autogenic, meaning sort of self-starting yeah. or uh, uh, self-triggering. Uh, right, yeah. And so basically the idea here is that German psychologist Johannes Heinrich Schultz, who lived 1884 through 1970, he developed uh, autogenic training with the goal of removing the therapist and or the hypnotist from the equation, uh, focusing on what seemed to be an inner switch that facilitated these states. So the idea is, like the, the rough argument, I guess you would say, is, okay, you're going to see uh, a therapist, you're going to see a hypnotist, and they're helping you reach this state. But you were the one who, like, allowed it to happen. Like, that switch is not external, it is in you. And therefore, this relaxation, uh, this state that you're reaching is auto-generated. It is, its origins are within you. Now, later in the episode, we'll get more into the, the specifics of autogenics and what, uh, uh, what, what, what research has to say about its effectiveness. But uh, we have to say that this is definitely a topic where the research led us into some unexpectedly weird and decidedly dark material, uh, namely, first of all, eugenics, uh, which we'll, we'll discuss the, the uh, distinction between autogenics and eugenics uh, here in a bit. They're not directly related concepts. And then uh, also the persecution of homosexuals in Nazi Germany. So fair warning that we're going to be discussing some heart-wrenching content and some examples of humanity at its worst, even as we explore the origins of an otherwise innocuous-sounding practice. So before we turn to Schultz and autogenic training, uh, we have to lay the groundwork a little bit regarding hypnosis and psychology uh, going into the 20th century. Okay. 
So let's start with modern hypnotism or mesmerism, which became popular due to the work of German physician Franz Mesmer, who lived 1734 through 1815. Uh, we've discussed uh, hypnotism on the show before. Uh, Mesmer's work was uh, uh, was a point of interest for a number of individuals, including the inventor of the guillotine, uh, uh, what, Zosif uh, India's uh, guillotine? Did I say that correctly? <laughs> I mean, I it was close enough. Okay. And then Ben Franklin, of course, was, uh, was, a, was a fan as well. I believe it's Franklin. Franklin, okay. okay. <laughs> ben Franklin effect. Yeah, one of the funny things about hypnotism is that whatever clinical relevance it actually has, the ways that we most often encounter it are uh, are in the more kind of uh, mesmerism tradition as a mm -hmm. kind of like public performance. And I think this in some ways undercuts its credibility as a, as a scientific phenomenon. Yeah, like we generally – encounter it in TV shows, right? There's yeah. some sort of a hypnotism episode. Somebody's hypnotized and either it's played just for sheer laughs, someone mm -hmm. clucks like a chicken, or it has a more fantastic treatment, uh, you know, in some sort of a, a fantasy Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of show. Or you're putting down the Red Queen and the Manchurian Candidate oh, yes. and all that kind oh, of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mind control stuff. Uh, all of which uh, it can be kind of distracting when you're trying to understand what hypnotism actually is. We, Like you said, we've covered it on the show before. I'll try to give the very short version of our conclusions from previous investigations. First of all, yes, it's basically a real thing. It's not just like made up. Uh, on the other hand, no, it is not magic. There's nothing especially spooky going on with it. Hypnosis refers to a particular type of mildly altered state of consciousness, a state of heightened relaxation and, very importantly, focused attention, reduced peripheral awareness, and increased suggestibility. The research makes it very clear that not everybody is equally susceptible to hypnosis. Some people appear to not respond to it at all. Other people seem very suggestible. The stuff you see in movies where people get hypnotized and turned into a sleeper agent assassin, that, that's not very realistic. I don't think it makes sense to think of hypnotism as a form of mind control. I think hypnotism could better be compared to other mildly altered states of consciousness like the things people achieve in meditation. Yeah, I agree. I think if you if you think of it more in terms of a meditative state, mm -hmm. uh, certainly as opposed to TV mind control, uh, you're, you're far closer to the mark. Yeah. Uh, however, it appears very possible and even consistent with a lot of research that hypnosis could in some cases be useful in treating medical complaints, especially medical complaints with a subjective or psychosomatic component, maybe in pain management or in treating stress. Uh, so while hypnosis itself, I think, is a real phenomenon, it's invoked in the service of a lot of hoaxes and fakery and pseudoscience. So when you go into the world of hypnotism and people start making claims about what can be done with it, you, sh you should have your guard up. Absolutely. And, and that can be said for a number of different meditative practices out there. You know, sure. Whenever the claims begin to venture more into the, uh, the supernatural, uh, you know, be cautious. I mean, not even just the supernatural, even when they venture into the uh, physically plausible but grandiose. Yes. Yeah. You know, the people who say like, you know, through my uh, meditation technique or my self-hypnosis tapes, you'll learn to master, all, you know, it's your, it's your guide to weight loss and confidence in the boardroom and all this stuff people say. There might be some real clinical effects uh, of things like hypnosis, but just be cautious when the promises get big. Right. I mean, it could kind of like the, the uh, interview 
interview episode on the science of yoga that uh, put out several months ago. It's like there are things that there are things that yoga can do, and things that the the research shows that it it can or may be able to do. And there then there are things for which there's no like plausible reason that it would have that effect on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, again, you can extrapolate that to a number of these different mindfulness exercises potentially. So Mesmer's work, uh, again, it interested a, a number of people. It made quite a splash. One of the individuals that uh, it interested was a, a man by the name of Oscar Vaught, who lived 1870 through 1955, and his wife, uh, Cecile Vaught Mugnier, who lived 1875 through 1962. Uh, they were neurologists and neuroanatomists, and they were really they, these two were really quite a team. Uh, I was not. I don't think I was specifically uh, aware of them, but they were early pioneers in functional uh, neuroanatomy and genetics, and they made a number of important contributions to the study of the brain during the 20th century. Uh, and, and not only that, their their daughter, uh, Martha Vaught, who lived 1903 through 2003, a good solid century there, she was one of the 20th century's leading neuroscientists as well. And then her younger sister, uh, Marguerite Vaught, who lived 1913 through 2007, was a cancer biologist and uh, virologist. So Oscar and uh, Cecile, they, they clashed with the Nazi regime during this time and were forced out of government service in 1937, and they continued their work in a privately funded institute in Neustadt. Uh, one of the sticking points, apparently, with uh, the Third Reich was their uh, was their collection of Russian contacts. And in fact, Oscar was charged with inspecting the brain of Vladimir Lenin following his death from a uh, following a series of strokes. Yeah. Uh, so, so these were brain experts. They studied yeah. the physical structure of the brain and how that contributed to the functioning of the brain. Uh, and one of the things that Oscar was apparently interested in was what you could see uh, with how the structures of the brain responded to hypnosis exercises. Yeah, so he apparently used it with his patients for a number of years. Uh, and along, along the way, he, did, he managed to cross paths with, a, with this German psychiatrist, uh, this man by the name of Johannes Heinrich Schultz, and reported to him that you know, his patients could use their own volition to produce sensations of heaviness and warmth in their bodies and transfer into a self-hypnotic state. So Schultz... Uh, took this idea, combined it with his own experiences using uh, hypnosis with patients, and this brought about the birth of autogenic training. So basically, he just, he just really you know, dove into this, this particular topic, like what can be done in the realm of, of uh, you know, self-regulated self-hypnosis. Yeah. Now, I think it's important to understand that in the first half of the 20th century especially, there is a lot of stuff happening in the world of psychology and psychiatry that is very interesting but is not what we would probably consider science today. Right. There's a lot of stuff going on in this world that I think is better to think of as philosophy. It's kind of more broad observational science than it is science based on controlled experiments and rigor. Yeah, we're, we're talking about, again, the late 19th century, the early 20th century, the heyday of uh, individuals like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Uh, the discipline of psychiatry itself was only entering its second century of existence, and the first half of the 20th century was dominated by this idea of psychoanalysis before chemical advances would bring about a, a new age of pharmacology in the second half of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, it's it's not just drugs that change psychiatry. Right. I mean, I mean, it's it was empirical methods of all sorts, I think, because you can also run empirical tests on the efficacy of uh, therapeutic techniques that don't involve drugs and 
that kind of stuff. But the world of Freud and, and Carl Jung, while you know, I, I enjoy their writings. I, yeah. I think they're very interesting, but it's not really science. It's, right. It, yeah, especially yeah. if you drill into an idea like the collective unconscious. You yeah. know, it's very it's fascinating stuff. It can it can certainly benefit you from a you know, philosophical standpoint, a creative standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fascinating concepts, but. Is it something that is uh, you know has any scientific validity to it? Uh, uh, probably not. It might be uh, wor- it might be able to generate ideas that could be put to rigorous testing by experimental psychologists and, mm-hmm. and psychiatrists who would come later. Right. So it was. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that it was you know an age of optimism in many respects. You had all these new tools that were coming online to enable the the treatment of nervous conditions, uh, nervous conditions that had plagued humanity for 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 quite some time. The secrets of the mind were being explored, and yet this was also a time of uh, of incredible darkness, entailing some truly horrendous studies, and of course the horrors of eugenics. That's right. I mean, generally, uh, science and medical practice under the Third Reich is a, just a, a litany of horror stories mm-hmm. of various kinds, and of course, psychiatry under the Third Reich is is really no different. Right, and, and we're not going to attempt to do any kind of a deep dive into that, but we will touch, I, I think, on some examples that exemplify the sort of the, the sort of pressure that was applied by the Third Reich on the sciences and the sort of, uh, you know, corrupted results that you that you get when that sort of relationship is in place. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will continue with our story and we'll, uh, we'll bring in the character of Johannes Heinrich Schultz. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about this idea of autogenics, which is some kind of form of purported self-hypnosis that was uh, created by a German psychiatrist named Johannes Heinrich Schultz in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, and he is he is a troubling figure, I think, to figure out. Uh, again, early 20th century, this was the heyday of psychoanalysis, and, and Schultz certainly believed in the power of psychoanalysis, though he also thought that it wasn't ideal, was not ideal for the treatment of psychosomatic disorders. And in these cases, he became convinced that the key lay in self-hypnosis and, of course, in his, uh, in his uh, concept of autogenic training. Right. So heterohypnosis would be the opposite of what – heterohypnosis would be where there is uh, – it was the so-called authoritarian method right. where there's a, a, a hypnotist guiding you, yeah. whereas autohypnosis you take into your own hands. OK. So what's the distinction here with psychosomatic disorders? Psychosomatic refers to problems in the body that are caused or aggravated by psychological factors. So you can have psychosomatic pain. Uh, you can you know, you know, can have uh, hypochondriasis. Uh, Schultz was cited by a biographer to have said, quote, it is complete nonsense to shoot with psychoanalytic guns after symptom sparrows. So I think what he's saying there is to whatever extent you can use psychoanalysis, that's more for problems that are uh, fully within the mind, mm. you know, the psychology realm. Uh, psychosomatic disorders where the problems are somewhere in the body and may have roots in psychological issues are not best addressed with psychoanalysis. He thought they would be better addressed with hypnosis or even autohypnosis. So uh, Schultz noted that – you know, there were two very common reports of unique body experiences during the process of hypnosis. And those two common reports were heaviness in the limbs and this weird sensation of warmth. 
How common these sensations were drove Schultz to see hypnosis as a treatment for relaxation in the body, not just something that affects the mind, but something to affect, for example, the autonomic nervous system. And also, based on the reports about what Vogt had been able to achieve with his own patients, Schultz came to believe that the authoritarian figure triggering the hypnotic state uh, within the authoritarian process, within the heterohypnosis, that that was not actually necessary. Yeah, again, the basic idea here is that when we undergo hypnosis, the changes are occurring within us. And with training, we would be able to trigger them without the aid of another person. The patient permits it to happen rather than it being something that the hypnotist does to the patient. That right. was Schultz's uh, whole argument. Yeah. So inspired by Volt and his own experiences with hypnosis, Schultz began employing these ideas in private practice. And this would have been when he opened his uh, private clinic in neurology and psychiatry in Berlin in 1924. So by the 20s, he's already trying this out. Right. And then in 1932, he published his first book on autogenic training, Das Autogene Training. And, and again, we'll get to the specifics of autogenic training in a bit here, but uh, in discussing 1932, we're, of course, just a year away from the establishment of the Third Reich, and this is where Schultz becomes a problematic figure. So first, let's be very clear about the Nazi regime. It was a dictatorship and a totalitarian state based on an ideology that celebrated nationalism, uh, the pseudoscience of racial hierarchy, anti-Semitism, scientific racism, and eugenics. Uh, Germany uh, contained a great many brilliant minds in 1933, but the Third Reich was only interested in how these minds and ideas could be used to serve the Nazi ideology and the war efforts. And uh, I, uh, rocketry, I think, is a, a good example uh, to look at here, just in, in brief. Um, you know, th this was a, you had you had German rocket scientists who were inspired by things like science fiction and mm -hmm. dreams of exploration. But when Werner von Braun, Werner yeah. von Braun, is a great example of this. But of course, what did the what did the the, the Third Reich want out of these mines? They wanted weapons. They wanted yeah. ways to deliver um, the V two, the V two, the V one, etc. To yeah. rain hell down upon England and and punish their enemies. Yeah. So there was no interest in something like space exploration or uh, moon bases or whatever whatever kind of like, you know, fanciful uh, extrapolation you find in conspiracy thinking. I think the Third Reich is one of the greatest examples in history of just an utter waste of intellectual potential. Yeah. You know, the, the, there was a lot of great scientific infrastructure in Germany in the Weimar period and going into the Third Reich. And the way all of that great intellectual potential was just bulldozed by Nazism is, is a great tragedy. So all the sciences become um, the domain of the state in Nazi Germany. And, of course, that also means uh, psychology and psychiatry as well. Uh, and, and, and really they were – uh, you know, these were fields that were, I think, especially vulnerable because especially at the time, given all the changes that were taking place in these fields, they were highly susceptible to manipulation by a totalitarian regime. I mean, even the hardest of the hard sciences were under attack by the Nazi ideology. Mm -hmm. You know, like they, they wanted to rid themselves of what they believed to be Jewish physics. Like oh, yeah. Not understanding that physics is physics. Like it doesn't matter what the ethnicity of the scientists who discovered it was. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, the, the whole other side to, to it, too. I mean, it's one it, – 
not only were, of course, the German scientists uh, pressured uh, to be a part of this machine, but then it, people who were uh, who were suspected of having ties to, say, the Russians, like the votes that we discussed earlier, they mm-hmm. were at least partially pushed out, and then Jewish scientists were completely pushed out. But I mean, if there are that many problems in a supposedly hard science like physics, you, you'd imagine that things get even weirder when you get into burgeoning fields like psychology and psychiatry. Right. Yeah. So the Nazi regime apparently didn't have any real strong opinions on self-hypnosis or autogenic training. Uh, but uh, there were other ideas in the field that were far more central to their ideology. And, uh, so, and so all this is going on. Schultz ends up publishing another book on autogenics. But his star continues to rise within German psychiatry. And as his star rises, others fall from grace in this now state-controlled uh, realm of the German scientists, again, namely Jewish scientists. In psychology, it was no different. Uh, but what were they to do about psychoanalysis? It was, again, highly favored by Schultz and others, but it was the product of Sigmund Freud, who was, of course, Jewish himself. His books were among those burned, and he eventually had to flee the country uh, as well. So, so part of, uh, of German psychiatry at the time, part of the mission statement of, of the Goring Institute, this was named for Matthias Heinrich Goring, cousin to the more famous and uh, at the time more powerful Hermann Goring. Uh, part of its whole aim was to rid psychiatry of, quote, Jewish influence and establish, quote, a new German psychotherapy. Which, of course, is ludicrous. Right. You know, it's like if someone were to say, well, let's just focus on, a, on an American science. Right. You know, how do you – what, what would that even mean? Would that mean you, you'd have to press out all like non-American ideas of what – of how the, the world works and what the cosmos consists of? I mean it wouldn't be the only time in history that there's been a kind of like stupid nationalist lens applied to sciences, like not understanding that – the sciences are about figuring out what's true about the world mm-hmm. and that those things are true no matter what your ethnicity is or what your nationality right. is. I guess the closest thing to validity you could find there would be that like, well, you might say as a nation we have these priorities about what we want to find out. But yeah, again, this is just a, a tragedy of stupidity. So Schultz, again, he keeps focusing on autogenics, but he also ends up uh, getting involved with in these ideas that are far more valuable uh, to the Third Reich. So he publishes work supporting eugenics. Um, eugenics, of course, in, in involves the idea that you should uh, – uh, you want to encourage you know, the good genes within a population uh, by eliminating um, uh, so-called destructive genes. Mm. Uh, and, and this generally takes the form of, of pretty horrific uh, efforts like forced sterilization for men with uh, mental retardation, uh, psychiatric or neurological disorders. Uh, those were exactly the forms it took under the Third Reich. Now, while eugenics was sort of one of the founding principles of the Third Reich ideology, I think it's worth acknowledging that in the first half of the 20th century, I mean, eugenics was all over the place. It yeah. was fashionable among intellectual elites all around the world, even in the United States and in other Western nations that ended up fighting the Nazis. Yeah, absolutely. It was by, yeah, by no means was it a, a German uh, idea. Uh, it, you know, you saw it, uh, plenty of examples of it in the United States. Uh, we talked a lot about eugenics actually in our interview with Carl Zimmer. When That's right. had yeah. that excellent book about heredity. Uh, so if you want to go back and listen to that episode, you can. Uh, but yeah, he, he explores a lot of the roots of eugenics within the United States at the time. But in this case, yes, the uh, eugenics movement would eventually sterilize some 400,000 individuals by the end of the war. And Schultz also focused on sexual education and the subject of homosexuality and the idea that it could be cured. 
So at the time, homosexuality was in general poorly understood from any sort of scientific standpoint and was highly susceptible to pre-existing prejudices. We know today, of course, that the notion of curing homosexuality is pseudoscience at best and generally it's, it's worse mm-hmm. than that. Uh, a 2019 study published in the journal Science, the largest study to ever analyze the genetics of same-sex uh, sexual behavior, points out that there's no one you know, gay gene or anything of the sort. Rather, to quote Pam Bellock in the New York Times, quote, the influence comes not from one gene but many each with a tiny effect, and the rest of the explanation includes social or environmental factors, making it impossible to use genes to predict someone's sexuality. Right. So sexual orientation, like almost everything else about us, is in fact controlled by a number of different genes acting in concert with our environment as we're brought up. Yeah, yeah. It's this complex interplay of nature and nurture, individual and the environment. And uh, more to the point, of course, it's not something to be corrected at all. It's not as it was often thought at the time in some of these uh, uh, regimes, including uh, you know the, the the Third Reich. It was it's not a societal problem, though it again is often framed like that and and was uh, and was outlawed as such in uh, various nations. And uh, homosexuality was certainly at odds with the Nazi ideology, which celebrated, among other things, this exaggerated and toxic vision of masculinity. Uh, historians, however, have also pointed out that this that this this Nazi hyper masculine ethos paradoxically may have encouraged male bonding in homosexual relationships as well. But I, you know, I guess it's one of these situations where that the kind of proximity of ideal and antithesis are often a common feature of homophobia. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, under the, in the sciences of the Third Reich, you had scientists that were who were you know taking a eugenics approach to the issue of homosexuality, believing that homosexuality was centered in a person's genes and could therefore be addressed via the the, the, the violence of eugenics. Schultz, on the other hand thought psychotherapy was the answer, that homosexuality was based in, quote, perversion, a profound disorder of the entire personality. And uh, that quote was pointed out in uh, a paper that I'm, I'm going to refer to ag- again here, uh, titled uh, Johannes Heinrich Schultz and National Socialism by uh, Jürgen Brunner, MD, Matthias Schrempf, and Florian Steger, MD, PhD. This was published in the Israeli Journal of Psychiatry in 2008. So here we get around to a, a different version of uh, anti-gay uh, reaction, right? Which instead of thinking, okay, there's just a there's a gene we can eliminate mm-hmm. somewhere, this instead says, no, it's something that's wrong with uh, with you know how your brain is working, and we can sort of train it out of you. Right. And unfortunately, uh, this point of view is not entirely gone from the world today. No, I mean that's 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 the thing. You could take Schultz uh, out of this. This particular uh, place and time, and you could easily place him, uh, in, say, in the United States today, and there would be some place for him with this kind of rhetoric. Yeah, the most common being things that are known as uh, like gay conversion therapies, yeah. which are utterly condemned by every psychological organization. From the American Psychological Association has issued statement after statement saying these treatments do not work and they don't do anything good for the person. That they, they should be discouraged at all costs. So without a doubt, Schultz definitely echoed and amplified Nazi homophobia and, uh, and, and, and gay persecution within German psychiatry. And that alone is, re- is reprehensible. But on top of that, he also engaged in experimentation. 
So under under Nazi rule, homosexuality was illegal in Germany, and it was it was apparently previously technically uh, illegal as well, though not prosecuted during the Weimar Republic. Uh, and convicted homosexuals under the Third Reich were sent to concentration camps. According to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, quote, between 1933 and 1945, an estimated 100,000 men were arrested for violating Nazi Germany's law against homosexuality, and of these, approximately 50,000 were sentenced to prison. An estimated 5,000 to 15,000 men were sent to concentration camps or on similar charges where an unknown number of them perished. And I also read that the, the death rate in the camps uh, for homosexuals has been estimated to something like 65 percent. Now, interestingly enough, um, you know, we briefly touched on the, the, during the Weimar Republic how it was, was not prosecuted and there was more of a, uh, you know, a, a feeling really uh, I've read of you know, liberation. There were actually you know, gay uh, – there was a gay rights movement at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so when you look at the, the early days of the Nazi regime, apparently – its stance on homosexuality was a little more ambiguous and uneven with some individuals not having really much of a stated opinion while you had other people like uh, SS, uh, you know, SS commander and chief Holocaust architect Heinrich Himmler being one of the, the, the early uh, you know, strong voices in favor of violent persecution of homosexuals in his view increasingly won out. Yeah. So Schultz began to experiment uh, with treating homosexuals through psychoanalysis, including many inmates that were brought in from concentration camps. And part of this was that apparently that he needed to demonstrate concrete psychotherapeutic success to maintain his position within the Goring Institute. And according to Brunner et al., between 1923 and 1938, 510 homosexuals were, quote, treated at the Goring Institute. 341 of them were said to be cured, and the cure was tested by forcing the individual to have sex with female prostitutes. So these all would have been gay men. Yes. So that, I think that, that just paints a horrific picture, obviously. Right. Uh, now, Schultz wasn't the only one involved here. Uh, according to the U.S. National Holocaust Museum, there was an expanded program of medical experimentation on homosexual inmates that ultimately caused illness, mutilation, and even death with absolutely no scientific benefits whatsoever. So again, we said we were going to be talking about a, a dark period of history, and, and so here we are. So the war ends, of course. Uh, Schultz dies in 1970 and uh, never faced any repercussions for his ideas or his experiments. Uh, and in fact, he continued to discuss his findings, publish his findings even, and supported the outlaw of homosexuality for the rest of his life. And this is apparently not out of the ordinary, sadly, as much of the Third Reich's crimes against homosexuals went unrecognized at a governmental level until the, like the, uh, well into the 1980s. The, the German government formally apologized in 2002. I, I mean, part of this, I think, would just have to do with attitudes around the rest of the world as well. I mean, uh, think about what oh, happened yeah. to Alan Turing even in England. Right. England which wanted to purport itself to be, you know, the free alternative to the to the authoritarian Germany, you know, like uh, gay people did not have equal rights there at all. Yeah, and and Alan Turing was was subjected to the horrors of eugenics. He was yeah. uh, 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 chemically sterilized. One of the topics that uh, Brunner and his co-authors uh, discuss concerns Schultz's legacy and to what extent he actually bought into Nazi ideology. Because you'll certainly encounter the argument that, okay, he didn't fully buy into Nazi ideology and, and uh, 
you know, there you also see it written that, okay, through his experiments, he actually retrieved inmates from concentration camps, though uh, of these, some were ultimately returned to the concentration camps and even the cured uh, in the case of, um, of soldiers. So-called cured. Yeah, yeah. so-called cured. Uh, ultimately, they were sent back to uh, the front. Uh, so both of these would have been high mortality fates. Uh, you know, certainly one is as an inmate and one is a soldier. They're not directly comparable. Uh, but uh, it, it does sound like this this argument that he was saving lives in any sense is is kind of ridiculous. Uh, the the conclusion of uh, Bruner and uh, the co-authors is that well, first of all, they say that you know they're limited uh, in that they had to depend on writings rather than interviews, and mm-hmm. certainly they couldn't actually interview Schultz himself. Uh, but their conclusion was that Schultz perhaps was more of an opportunist and a political survivor. But still, he certainly expressed these homophobic beliefs throughout his life and that, quote, the use of typical Nazi vocabulary as well as the dissemination of the Nazi body of thought as late as 1952 give reason to believe that the statements from 1935 and 1940 were not only about opportunistic lip service, but instead were an expression of his fundamental conviction. So we're left with this this image of a of a discipline and a practitioner certainly caught up in the storm of Nazi ideology and also embracing much of its vileness. He he helped enable homosexual persecution and engage in abusive unethical experimentation and yet he also created this practice of inner calming that is still practiced to this day. We mentioned how autogenic training is maybe, you know, not that widely known here in the United States, but it's it's apparently more widely practiced or has been more widely practiced in Canada, England, Germany, and Russia. In Russia, yeah. So we're going to take another break, but when we come back, we'll discuss autogenic training a little bit on its own. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. 
Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. All right, so we've been talking about Johannes Heinrich Schultz, the creator of this self-hypnosis process that is called autogenics. The idea is that you could uh, – you, you don't need the authoritarian figure telling you, you know, you are, you are feeling relaxed, you feel your limbs being heavy and all that stuff, that you can train yourself to undergo this process on your own. I thought it was interesting that even though I've read about uh, hypnosis before, I had never really encountered anything about autogenics before you, you brought up this topic to, as a possibility to talk about on the show. And I was wondering why it is that I've like never heard of this at all before. Well, something that I had heard of, and you may have heard of this uh, previously as well, is the practice of progressive muscle relaxation which uh, is sometimes integrated into yoga practices. Uh, mm. I've been to, to yoga classes where they engage in like a little of this anyway. And this was developed independently by the American physician Edmund Jacobson in 1908. So pretty much emerging from the same, the same uh, you know, realm of, uh, of, of psychiatry and uh, contemplation of the human mind. As we're going to discuss, uh, autogenic training, I think – suffers from a dearth of research into its, uh, you know, high-quality research, uh, recent research into its efficacy. But what is out there, a lot of it focuses on uh, different types of relaxation techniques all sort of put together. So it looks at progressive muscle relaxation, autogenic training, and then maybe also something like mindfulness meditation or yeah, something. Yeah, uh, biofeedback is biofeedback, also thrown in there. Yes. Yeah. So it seems to be considered part of a class of stress relief or relaxation exercises. So a standard autogenics training exercise uh, tends to consist of several phases. There's a heaviness uh, exercise of limb and body relaxation, a warming exercise, a heart regulation exercise, a breathing exercise, and then organs and then head. And it involves spoken mantras and focusing on specific parts of the body. So for instance, you might say, 
you know, you might say that your arms are heavy and you'll repeat that like six times and then you'll say, I am very quiet. And then you'll do another six on the, the arm, uh, on the other arm and, uh, and then you'll again return to this mantra of, of, of quietness. Yeah, we were looking for a good recent, uh, you know, skeptical scientific source on autogenic training, and I think one of the best things we came across was a chapter in a book. Uh, it's a it's a psychiatry textbook called "The Principles and Practice of Stress Management," and this chapter was by a uh, professor emeritus in the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia named Wolfgang Linden. And Lyndon points out one thing that's kind of unique to autogenic training, which proponents of autogenic training call passive concentration. So I'm going to read from Lyndon here explaining what this is. Passive concentration may sound paradoxical in that concentration usually suggests effort. What it means in AT is that the trainee is instructed to concentrate on inner sensations rather than environmental stimuli. And this is indeed somewhat effortful, especially for the novice. If this concentration does not come easily, the trainee is told to let thoughts wander for a while or to rearrange the body position for more comfort rather than to force inner concentration. Not forcing, allowing sensations to happen, and being an observer rather than a manipulator are what the passive refers to. The AT trainee is warned that trying too hard is counterproductive. It may lead to negative reactions such as muscle spasms, and it stands in the way of acquiring the necessary passive attitude. Interestingly, I, I, I see a couple of parallel. I'm sure they're unintended, but parallels here with some mindfulness meditation practices. Yeah, yeah. Again, you, I feel like we come back to the idea that that these are all kind of discussing the same phenomena. There are just different ways of getting there. They're sort mm-hmm. of you know getting to that. Uh, you need different sort of trails of language and trails of culture to approach it. Some people are going to be able to best approach it through some through a trail that is more spiritual, you know, in its uh, trappings. Mm-hmm. Others need something more uh, based in psychiatry, or you know, something that is either attached to the the latest thinking or has perhaps a, an air of history to it. Mm-hmm. I, I would say ultimately, what all these things have in common to me, it might be not what the proponents of something like autogenic training would say, which is that, well, you know, it's about the the relaxation of the body and the self-control aspect is very important and all that. To me, what seems most important unifying all these different relaxation techniques is the control of attention. Yeah. Yeah, to be able to to take the wandering mind, uh, you know, with its uh, the default mode network and its its uh, you know the voice of narrative and all these things that are occurring, our our our, our ponderings and our, our our anxiety over past and future, and to be able to sort of uh, refocus that onto something very specific, like. What is your arm doing right now or, or your breathing being the, the prime example across numerous different practices, focusing on the breath? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, so Lyndon says that the, the, the passive uh, concentration principle here, the thing we were just talking about, is the one thing that supposedly separates autogenic training from other methods of relaxation techniques like, uh, like uh, progressive muscle relaxation or biofeedback. It's, you know, if you talk to an autogenics training person, they would probably heavily emphasize this passive concentration part as important. Beyond that, when you go through the different stages, uh, Robert, what you were talking about earlier, you know, where you go through the 
the limb and body relaxation and then the heart regulation and then the breathing and then your guts and then your head, uh, that when you go through these, you will have sort of like formulaic schemes of repeated things that, that you go through in order to to do those different parts of the body each time and that what you want to do, Lyndon says, is have vivid, personally meaningful imagery to accompany each of these formulaic body relaxation schemes. Uh, so I was trying to know exactly what that is but I, th apparently like for the head, you're supposed to picture – something about a cooling forehead, maybe something about water. And then for your guts, it's something about rays of light. Mm. Uh, but I, I just kept thinking, picture your head as a toilet. All the stress is flushing away. <laughs> well, it makes me think back to the books track, uh, autogen Group Autogenics uh, Part 1, mm. uh, where the, one of the clips they use is someone saying, your body is a warm uh, orange-colored liquid. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be potentially a specific example of this, you know, to, uh, very, very specific bit of mental imagery and probably one of the, the details that, that, that I really dug about that song. It's like your body is a warm, orange-colored liquid. There's something very relaxing about that concept. I mean, whether or not these techniques actually reduce stress, that image reduces stress for me. I yeah. like that. Like it's, it's, it's weird. I am it's Fago. novel and it takes you <laughs> – yeah, maybe that was yeah. the warm Fago, some hot Fago to get you through the winter. <laughs> um, so uh, Lyndon writes that in a clinical setting uh, – Autogenic training is used primarily to reduce unnecessary autonomic arousal. In other words, to reduce stress. This shouldn't be surprising given what we've already talked about. Though in theory, he points out, it, it is designed and believed by its advocates to work in any direction. So in theory, it could be used not just to reduce stress but to raise problematically low levels of autonomic arousal. Though how often do you need to do that? Yeah. I don't know. I mean he mentions like a, like a low heart rate or something. Mm -hmm. Okay. As for uh, the question of whether Schultz himself was rigorous in, in how he presented the benefits of uh, this technique, uh, Linden's writing about a book published by Schultz and a student of his named Wolfgang Luther. Uh, I believe this was published in 1969 or 1970. I think Schultz died in 1970, so it would have been right around the time of his death. But uh, Linden writes, quote, for a reader with a strong empiricist bent, reading the original works will likely be a frustrating task because in the ultimate evaluation of A.T.'s effectiveness, no distinction is made by Schultz and Luther among opinions, single case reports, and controlled studies of which there were precious few. So by 1970, they're still advocating, you know, our technique is great, but there, there is not a strong experimental record to back that up. Mm. Uh, now uh, Wolfgang Luth, uh, he would have uh, he would have been a, a Canadian at the time, uh, but he had moved there. Uh, he was a German by birth and moved there in the late 1940s. And uh, I found that in in uh, like a, the, the Wikipedia entry about him, for instance, it, it kind of it doesn't really mention what he did during uh, uh, the Second World War. I did find another uh, source uh, that said that he served as a junior medical officer on the Eastern Front. Uh, and also, he's not to be confused with U-boat captain Wolfgang Luth, um, who is a you know, different figure altogether. But Luther would have uh, would have practiced uh, autogenic training in Canada right. uh, uh, during this post-war period. Do you know if he was primarily responsible for bringing it to Canada? 
I'm not certain on that, but I wouldn't I, be surprised. I would, yeah. yeah, I kind of suspect that he was, given his affiliation, um, you know, uh, especially throughout uh, the post-war period with Schultz. Now, uh, there, there were others, you know, that definitely tried to bring. I mean, it certainly it came to the United States and was practiced and is practiced in the United States by by some. Uh, but one uh, interesting story I came across where someone was strongly advocating for it was uh, a 1977 New York New York Times report uh, that uh, pointed to. Um, uh, psychologist and uh, hypnotism advocate Dr. William S. Kroger, who warned in 1977 that the Russians were training their Olympic athletes with hypnosis and autogenic training to improve performance, and that the United States would need to get with the program if they if, if they were hoping to keep up. Now, this is also when they were training psychic assassins, so it all works out. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of tie into the whole Cold War fear of like, okay. Th- the, the Russians are doing something or the reverse. The Americans are doing something. Mm-hmm. What if it works? And then adding in perhaps some misinformation and disinformation about it actually working. Yeah, I mean, it does appear to have been popular with some therapists in Russia. Uh, a lot of the studies on the effectiveness of autogenic training are older. I would hesitate to rely on them too much. I mean, I would say overall – Autogenic training's efficacy at treating specific diseases such as hypertension I think remains sort of an open question. But Lyndon does draw attention to a few studies in his assessment of of the effectiveness of uh, AT. Uh, For example, he writes, quote, A particularly striking demonstration of treatment effect variability is provided by – I got some names here – Ivazayan, Zaitsev, and Uranev in 1988 – who randomly assigned hypertensive patients to either AT or a no-treatment control condition. When mean changes were broken down into percentage improved ratings, the following figures emerged. In the autogenics training treated group, 32% improved, 59% remained unchanged, and 9% deteriorated. In the control group, 59% also remained unchanged, thus the same as the last group, 11% improved and 30% deteriorated. Clearly, therapy did little for the majority of patients, whereas the between-group difference is effectively attributable to treatment effects consisting of both direct improvement and the prevention of worsening. Thus, valuable healthcare funds may be better invested if patients who are not going to benefit from treatment can be identified a priori and left out of the treatment comparison. And there are a few other studies that uh, Lyndon talks about that show, you know, maybe there is some uh, effectiveness of of techniques like AT uh, at reducing stress or physiological arousal, maybe re- uh, reducing some uh, downstream effects of stress like hypertension. I wasn't seeing anything that makes it look like autogenic training is any kind of you know like magic bullet that's right. that's gonna uh, that's gonna solve all the world's problems. Though it may have some benefits similar to some other relaxation techniques. Now, another idea that comes up in uh, autogenic training is the idea that that in these practices you'll have like this surge of uh, say negative emotion. Oh yeah, that um, that is the ultimately is like a purging of negative feelings from the body. Oh yeah, this was Schultz's idea of autogenic discharge. This is where I mean. So there are some elements of the autogenic training that you can see. Okay, this just seems like this is a technique that could plausibly have uh, psychosomatic benefits, and you know, could reduce stress and all that. There are other things that seem a little more kind of Freudy, just kind of like you know, like talking about the discharging of all these pent up 
things that come out during the process. Uh, I think there was this belief in like discharging of sexual tensions and things mm-hmm. like that, which uh, I don't know. I, I don't see any good reason to believe stuff like that is happening. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I, you know, I, 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 I think like a lot of us, you know, you can, I can certainly think to examples in my own life where I'm engaged in some sort of, uh, you know, yogic or relaxation, meditative uh, uh, experience. And there is some feeling of purging, you know, mm-hmm. of some emotional negativity, you know, coming out and then you're being free of it. On the other hand, it, one of the frequent things that occurs when you try and meditate uh, or, you know, or, or, or enter any kind of relaxed state is that you'll, you'll stumble and sometimes you'll fail, right? And uh, the more you try and focus on nothing, sometimes your brain will just really want to stab you with a, a, sh- with a big piece of uh, you know, yeah. negative shrapnel. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's just how our brain often works. And it's, it seems like this might be a, an interest, uh, interesting way of working that into a meditative practice so that when those thoughts emerge, uh, that's, just, uh, that's just the purging in process. Uh, and I don't know, to, to some extent, I could see that being a, a helpful technique if it keeps you on the horse, as it, as it were, you know, if it keeps you on the, the bicycle of meditation and it keeps you from just giving up and stopping. Sure. So I think that, you know, this, is, this all makes for an interesting case to look at in considering, you know, first of all, how, how state-promoted ideology can impact professions and professionals. And, and it also presents a problem of how we relate to a possibly beneficial idea that springs from the life and the mind of someone who's engaged in unethical or morally reprehensible um, uh, movements. So first of all, uh, I, I will say if you're listening to this and you have some experience with autogenic training, uh, you've uh, you've practiced it yourself, you've looked into it yourself, et cetera, we would obviously love to hear from you uh, about this, your firsthand uh, you know, take on the practice itself and maybe even on its history as well because you know, I, I think this is ultimately a, an interesting case to look at in considering – how state-promoted ideology can impact professions and professionals. And it also you know, presents a problem of how we relate to possibly beneficial ideas that spring from the lives and minds of people engaged uh, sometimes in unethical or morally reprehensible movements. Now, of course, is autogenics the only concept or idea to have its origins in a problematic individual? Certainly not, though it perhaps is a pretty jarring example to turn to given his role, uh, again, in gay conversion therapy under the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this is a question, we, again, we have, to th- we have to contemplate regarding a number of different um, concepts and ideas that have any kind of historic origin or even not so historic origins because ultimately, no matter how – you know, elevated a concept may seem to us, uh, no matter how you know great a particular teaching, they are inevitably you know have their origins in the minds of human beings, uh, who at the very best are flawed and at worst can be engaged in, in monstrous practices. Well, you know, the, there have been other cases I can think of where there are attempts to. Uh, I don't know, distance a practice that in some way people believe to have found helpful from a problematic individual who it mm-hmm. came from. I mean, I, I think about, uh, for example, there, there were some efforts I know to try to come up with a kind of uh, secular version of uh, of mantra-based uh, meditation to kind of get away from the transcendental meditation movement origins. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's certainly – you see examples of this throughout um, – 
you know, yoga practices as well, where there'll be, say, a particular school of yoga that emerges, and then the individual that is associated with, there'll be, uh, you know, some, some uh, you know, scandal or, or whatnot that occurs. But people will want to hold on to the teaching. So, you know, sometimes it's more of a rebranding attempt or, you know, or to take, you know, what works about something, distance it from the individual and, 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 um, and, and celebrate it there, practice it there. I mean, ultimately, a, a, a corrupt yogi or even a gay conversion therapy Nazi does not own the way you find peace, whatever your techniques are. True. So uh, obviously, again, this is a topic that we'd love to hear from folks about if you have any experience with uh, autogenic training, certainly, but uh, also just this broader question we're asking here as well. Uh, we're curious to hear what everyone has to say. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of our show, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is everywhere. Wherever you get it, just make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe. This really helps us out in the long run. And, oh, for our listeners out there, any listeners who are in the Atlanta area, um, want to let you know that uh, there is an event coming up, part of the Atlanta Science Festival. It's called How Snakes Work. It is going to be on Saturday, March 7th, 2020, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can find out about it at atlantasciencefestival.org. But it's pretty cool because it is a, um, a team-up effort from How Stuff Works, the, the website from which we spawned, and the Amphibian Foundation, uh, Mark Bandinka's organization. Mark Bandinka, of course, is a friend of the show and has been on uh, to discuss amphibians, uh, snakes, lizards, and more. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 